Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. My name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing The 48 Laws of Power by Big Bad Robert Greene. Mate, it is a big bad book. It's a powerful book, both in terms of the content and physically, mate. It's a large book. Mate, it's a moral, cunning, ruthless, and instructive. So, these 48 laws, you can do it uh, to use it for yourself in your own pursuit of power, or you can... Use it to understand how other people use these kind of laws in their quest for power. Yeah, you can either use it to identify what other people are doing or you can use it for yourself for either good or evil. However you want to use it, it's up to you. Yeah, I think just looking in your eyes, I think you got evil. Oh, yeah. You got Mate, it's, evil powerful. You. it's a powerful book. Oh, man. absolutely. Yeah. Mate, the opening line of the book, the feeling of having no power over people and events is generally unbearable to us. When we feel helpless, we feel miserable. No one wants less power, everyone wants more. So that's where we're at, mate. We want to get some more power. Yeah, power's got a, it's got a very negative connotation, unfortunately, but you know, it's something we all want and something that will help us in our in our quest for the impact we want to have on the world. You can try to be good all the time, but Niccolo Machiavelli says, any man who tries to be good all the time is bound to come to ruin among the great number of people who are not good. And that's the thing, man. You can try and be the saint. You can try and be fair and democratic and civilized all the time and you've got to appear that way, but everybody else is doing some dodgy power moves underneath so you got to be playing the game as well <laughs> see how the, the world rolls and you've been watching too much survivor mate <laughs> so we're not going to go through every 48 48 of the laws that would be probably eight to ten hours eight to ten hours and that it's they are all incredible laws i think this is one of the, the one of the best books of all time well researched and everything and today we're going to go through what we think is our favorite seven the most actionable and applicable to the real world that's it, mate. So, law number one is never outshine the master. And the law itself, he says that always make those above you feel comfortably superior. In your desire to please and impress them, do not go too far in displaying your talents or you might accomplish the opposite. Inspire fear and insecurity. Make your masters appear more brilliant than they are and you will attain the heights of power. Oh, it's, this is a big one. So, never outshine the master. This is very applicable to everyone because... The person on top of you, you know, just like every human being, they've got insecurities. And when you show that you're brilliant and you're amazing and you might be better than they are in some ways and it just might be you just being yourself, mm. you know, they get insecure and then they're going to look to cut your head. It's so, a trap that we can fall into, man, especially if, you know, young, the start of our journey, career journey, we step into the corporate office, we think we're the big hotshots who've just finished this uni degree and we know everything. Mm. and we outshine the boss and that's a sure way to find yourself in the bad books, mate. And I think a lot of people tend to do that when they first walk into an office thinking they run the world. Exactly. He says, all masters want to appear more brilliant than other people. They do not care about science or empirical truth or the latest invention. They care about their name and glory. So, in the book, Robert Greene, he goes through three or 4,000 years of stories and pulls out stories that apply to each of these. So, one that I like for this, he talked about Galileo in, I think, the 15th or 16th century. What Galileo used to do was whenever he found, made a new discovery, say he built this new telescope, he'd give one telescope to one rich family, he'd give like a book about the discovery he made to another rich family, and all he got back was like gifts and, and praise. He never actually got paid for what he did. So, he realized that what he has to do is just commit to one person, don't outshine them, make this master essentially the, the center of the attention. So, what he did, he discovered that Jupiter had four moons and he went to the Medici family, which were like the richest family in Italy, and he named like one of one moon after each of the four brothers who ran this family. And he had essentially, rather than saying, I'm Galileo, I found these four moons, he said, 
This is the moons of the Medici family, these four big dog blokes who run Italy. This is all they're doing, essentially. That's all they care about, man. Their name and their glory. That's it. And Galileo played into those insecurities of these people. And then Galileo, we remember him, actually. We, I don't know who the Medici family is, but I'm sure they're pretty cool. No, they still hang they go around. well, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they're probably still around <laughs> in some regard. But he says, knowing the dangers of outshining your master, you can now turn it into your advantage, which is great. So, you, first of all, you can flatter and puff up your master. But overt flattery can be effective, but it's also got its limits. Mm. If it's too direct and obvious, it looks really bad to others. So, yeah. if you're just sucking up to your boss, you know, your colleagues around you are going to just see you as just a little suck up and it's not going to help you on your movement toward power. Definitely, man. He says that even if you are, say, more intelligent or you've got a more bright personality than your master, you don't want to be too overt with that. You even want to suppress your own personality or you want to appear less intelligent like make a small mistake and get them to help you correct it or ask them for help so that they feel they're better than you rather than you outshining them by being perfect if you stuff a few little things up in front of them but nothing too critical you give them the opportunity to come in and with their ego come in and save the day just so that they feel good and they still feel more superior than everyone like they should be feeling as the master exactly they're the master never outshine them so law number one Never outshine the master. Absolutely. Very, very powerful stuff and very applicable. The next one we're going to review is law number five. It says, so much depends on reputation, guard it with your life. So, the judgment, which he begins each chapter. Reputation is the cornerstone of power. Through reputation alone, you can intimidate and win. Once it slips, however, you are vulnerable and you'll be attacked from all sides. So, he says it, you know, it takes years to build a reputation but it can be destroyed in seconds. Mm, unfortunately. So, yeah. here's a quote. He starts off with Frederick Nietzsche. It is easy to cope with a bad conscience than a bad reputation. That's it, man. Once you've got a bad reputation- <laughs> it's one of those evil kind of comments that kind of filters <laughs> through in these books, which is great. <laughs> it's almost impossible to rebuild a reputation once you've ruined it. You can start from nothing and build it up, but once you go negative, it's very, very hard to recover. So, it, it does hold a lot of power, this reputation thing. And he's got a really interesting story about China's War of the Three Kingdoms back in the 15th century. So, in China's War of the Three Kingdoms, the great leader, Chuka, led his forces into the Shu Kingdom. And sentinels hurried to Sima Li, who was inside the kingdom, and said, come on, mate, there's 150,000 troops here. We've only got 100. We're pretty much fucked. All right. So, you'd be pretty scared 150,000 <laughs> troops coming in. But uh, Seymour Lee, he was smart enough and he knew the power of reputation. So, he took his, his clothes off, put on his robes, um, sat on the, the, the tallest wall in the castle and as they approached, he started playing the flute in his, uh, in his, <laughs> in his tallest robes. And then these guys came here and thought, oh, shit, look at this guy. Yeah. And then they all bailed. <laughs> so Normally, that's not too intimidating, is it? Just a dude sitting on a it's tower not, playing a flute. It's not. But Seymour Lee, at this stage, he had this reputation of the sleeping dragon. So, this is what the people thought this guy was as they came in. And they saw the sleeping dragon there just in his robes playing the flute. <laughs> like, fuck. <laughs> and he says, as powerful as any weapon, his reputation struck fear into the enemy. That's it. So, they saw this dude who was cool, calm, and collected. They didn't realize he only had a hundred dudes on the other side of the of the the castle wall. They thought he's leading us into a trap. He's pretending to be so calm here. We're about to be destroyed by the sleeping dragon. He's going to awaken and unleash something crazy on us. And they thought, hang on, we don't want to walk into this trap. Let's get out of here. And it was all down to Seema Lee's reputation alone. 
He describes an image in every chapter, which is really interesting. He's in this one, a mine full of diamonds and rubies. He says, you dug for it, you poured your blood, sweat, and tears into it. Then you found it, and your wealth is now assured. Guard the mine with your life. Robbers and thieves will appear from all sides. Never take your wealth for granted and constantly renew it. Time will diminish the jewel's luster and bury them from sight. And basically, you're saying here, mate, you've you've poured your blood, sweat, and tears into digging this diamond mine, which is the effort and years and energy that you put into building up your own reputation. And now that you've got to the top, you've got this reputation or you've found these diamonds and rubies, you need to protect that. Absolutely, guard it with your life. There's people coming to try and ruin it. Little snitches in this game of game of life. And at the end of every chapter, he also includes like a reversal. So he's not saying this is the absolute gold, but he's saying sometimes there's occasions where it doesn't work. But in this instance, he said there is no possible reversal. <laughs> Reputation is critical. There is no exception. The only potential one, he says, if if you're someone who absolutely does not care about what other people think and you don't care what your reputation is, you could use that to your advantage. Yes. But in most cases, you need, a, you need a good reputation. Yep. So that's law number five. So much depends on your reputation. Guard it with your life. The next one, mate. Law number nine. Win through your actions, never through argument. And the judgment here is any monetary triumph you think you have gained through argument is really a furic victory. What's that word, mate? That's furic, yeah. Furic. The resentment and ill will you uh, ill will you stir up is stronger and lasts longer than any momentary change of opinion. It is much more powerful to get others to agree with you through your actions without saying a word. Demonstrate, do not explicate. So, we've got two stories here. One is a transgression of the law where someone did this all wrong and one is the observance of the law where someone did it all right. So, the transgression is in 131 BC, a Roman leader wanted to get this massive battering ram to smash down this wall uh, of the Greek town of Pergamus. So, he wanted this massive battering ram to smash down the city wall. He was roaming around the dockyards. He saw two ships with masts that he was going to use. He saw a big one and a not so big one. And he said, I want the fucking big one because I want the biggest battering ram possible to knock down this wall. Now, the engineer said to him, oh, sorry, sir, the smaller one actually is going to be better. It's stronger. You, it's lighter, meaning you can make it, uh, you'll be quicker with it and you'll actually deliver more force with the smaller one than the bigger one. But the big dog said, no, nah, mate, I want, the, I want the big, big, big battering ram, the biggest one possible. Oh, yeah. And then the engineer argued with him. The engineer was never going to win. So, in the end, when the argument had finished, the engineer got the smaller one anyway and he gave him the smaller one. And uh, needless to say, mate, the king was absolutely fucking pissed off at him and he sent his soldiers out, got the engineer stripped naked, whipped the shit out of him and whipped him until he died. Yep, death. So, you don't want to be arguing with the king uh, and you don't want to just, you know, go against what the king has to say. So, you know, those... What How he could have the engineer played that differently though? No, what he could have done, he could have got both and shown him that, yeah, uh, let's, let's try both. Here's a big one, here's a small one and he would have then shown him that the small one was better without arguing with him. I really like it. Yeah. So, yeah, show visually and I think that is... It comes into the next observance of the law story here. This is a sick story, man. This is about um, Michelangelo and uh, creating this, uh, the statue of David. Mate, I'm just going to admit my own ignorance here. I didn't realize the statue of David was the same David of David and Goliath fame. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that either. Know? Yeah, when, man, I had no idea. When did you learn that? From this book. Oh, I missed that part. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought it was a different dude named David, but no, same guy. Absolutely interesting yeah. though. So, <laughs> Michelangelo, he finished his big work of art, right? He'd worked up forever mm. at working on this one. 
And it was all for uh, Soderini, who was for. So he took him up yeah, there. Soderini say, was the mayor of Florence. Mayor of Florence. Mm-hmm. So he brought Sor- Soderini in here and goes, hey, mate, what, what do you think of this? And Soderini said, oh, you know, I don't really like the look of this statue's nose. Yeah. He said, look, this is perfect, mate. It's a, it could be a masterpiece. The nose is just a little bit too big. Mm. So Michelangelo, understanding this law, he went up to the nose he got the chisel out, tapped it just for the effect, and a yeah. little bit of dust came off the nose. Yeah. There was real no visual interpretation. Yeah. And he got Soderini to view it from the other side of where the statue was. Yeah. So, uh, the result, no change at all to the statue. However, Soderini was under the impression that mm-hmm. his advice to Michelangelo was taken and his amendments were done to the statue. And Soderini thought it was an incredible statue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, mate. So, Michelangelo knew... I can't change the nose, even though this guy thinks he wants it changed. The nose is perfect. I'm not going to change it because it could ruin the whole thing. He also knew that if he argued with the guy, he wasn't going to win. Now, this Soderini, he was the mayor. He was the one who was paying for all the um, works of art. So, he knew that if he pissed this guy off, he's not going to get any more work. So, what he did was he pretended to take this guy's orders and just from a different point of view, the guy thought, yeah, this is perfect. So, rather than arguing, he just showed through his actions. Very applicable to the real world here, I think. Definitely. If you've got something, some kind of argument or tiff with your boss or if you think your project might not be looking like going ahead, do not go after them and argue them. Uh, perhaps pull out the Excel spreadsheet and put in the numbers and just show them visually what's going down. Yeah. Not verbally. Let them make the decision. It's pretty much sort of you almost have to do what they say. And do what you think, show them both, and then let them choose which one's better rather than arguing and saying, you're wrong, I'm right, which is never going to work out in your favor. So, the keys to power here, he says, words are a dime a dozen. Everyone knows that in the heat of argument, we will say anything to support our case. Mm. We would quote the Bible or pull out random statistics to pretend to be acting on someone else's authority, but who can actually be persuaded by bags of air like that? Mate, he says, whenever you aiming for power or trying to conserve your power, you need to do it indirectly, not through argument. And so, he says that you need to choose your battles carefully, know when it's when arguing is never going to work out in your favor and pick your battles, make sure you do it in the correct way. So, that's law number nine, mate. Win through your actions, never through argument. Law number 10 is infection. Avoid the unhappy and unlucky. So, another brutal one, but I fucking love it. <laughs> uh, the judgment here is you can die from someone else's misery. Emotional states are as infectious as diseases. You may feel you are helping the drowning man, but you are only precipitating your own disaster. The unfortunate sometimes draw misfortune on themselves. They will also draw it on you. Mm-hmm. Associate with the happy and fortunate instead. I think that's that's pretty true, man. Oh, yeah. Negative people can bring you down. Positive people can build you up. So, you want to pick who you hang out with, avoid the unhappy and unlucky. It's a brutal way of just saying you're the average of the five people. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really happy, friendly... <laughs> Um, you know, uh, surface level kind of d- uh, description of what's going on here. But this is the very brutal way of saying. Straight to the point, mate. The people who are drowning, just let them drown. <laughs> if if it's through their own doing, just let them drown That's and it. walk off. And, you know, this is not Don't. my own words. This is Robert Greene's interpretation. Don't try to save them, mate, because they'll drag you down with them. He says, the infecting character type stems from the inward st- instability that radiates outward, drawing disaster upon itself. There is almost a desire to destroy and unsettle. You could spend a lifetime studying the pathology of the infecting character, but don't waste your time. Just learn the lesson. He says that you've got to understand, in the game of power, the people that you choose to associate with is absolutely critical. And associating with the wrong people um, can lead to you getting infected yourself. So, he said there's only one solution to infection, and that's quarantine, mate. Like a virus, 
You got to isolate it and you got to quarantine it, mate. Cut it out of your life completely. Yes. So, you know, it's a lot like a virus. So it's unseen. It, you know, before you know it, it's kind of entering your pores without warning, spreading silently and slowly. And before you're aware of the infection, it's deep inside you. So when you're around these people who are just miserable, they're victims, and and their shock is like that, they're going to uh, automatically put this onto you. And without mm. even knowing it, you're going to take on these kind of traits in your life and it's going to really uh, fuck you up in the long yeah. run. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you want to do the exact opposite of this. You want to associate and with the positive people and try and through emotional osmosis, use this to your advantage. If you're miserable, associate with people who are joyful. If you're introverted, associate it with extroverts. So, never you don't want to hang around the same people that share the same weakness as you. You want to be looking for someone who's got the strength and try and suck it out of them. Mm. So, yeah, it's something we're not really always aware of, but we're very susceptible to the moods and emotions of the people around us much more than we believe we are. So, um, it's one of those things like consciously making the decision to rule out uh, some people who bring you down all the time out of your life. It's a bloody ballsy decision, but it's going to have a big impact on the, on the things that you do. Give them the chop. Give them the chop. Get rid of them. And like the law earlier, for this, there is no reversal. <laughs> <laughs> always it. obey this law. Yeah. Always inv- obey the infectious and avoid the bullshit infection. Yeah. So, that's law number 10, infection, avoid the unhappy and unlucky. Love it, mate. Law number 11, learn to keep people dependent on you. Oh. And the judgment here, to maintain your independence, you must always be needed and wanted. The more you are relied on, the more freedom you have. So, it sounds contradictory there, but it says that if you make people dependent on you for their happiness and prosperity, then you have nothing to fear. Never teach them enough so they can do it without you. Another one that's extremely applicable to anyone in a job. He says, the o- those who are replaceable will absolutely get destroyed. Mm. So, if you're replaceable, sooner or later, someone will come along who can do the job just as well as you. Someone younger, fresher, hotter, prettier, less expensive and less threatening. So, he says, be the only one who can do what you do and make the fate of those who hire you and those around you so entwined on you they can possibly, not possibly get rid of you. It's a contradictory one in that he's saying that you need people dependent on you in order to get dependence. So, if you're the only one that can do something, you might think, oh, I'm stuck here. I'm the only one that can do this. But really, it works the other way. If you're the only one that can do something, they need you more than you need them. And this is something that comes up in a lot of different books. I think the idea of, say, career capital mm. is very applicable here. So, career capital is the idea that you are in the pursuit of such mastery in a certain area that you have such scarce skills that it is absolutely valuable around it and then you've got leverage over your career because people highly value what you've got and then no one else around you has that and you are really irreplaceable. As you say, Matt, once you've got that leverage, once they're dependent on you, once you become irreplaceable or the linchpin, then you've got the power then over them and that's when you can use it to your advantage. Maybe it's a promotion, maybe it's a pay rise, maybe it's more time freedom, but once you're once they're dependent on you, you become more independent, which is sounds weird, but that's how it works. So if you're ambitious, if you're ambitious, it's much wiser to seek out all the weak rulers or weak masters whom you can create a relationship of dependence. So if you're in a big corporate and you got four directors or something like that, go to the weakest director and make him dependent on you, and you become their strength, intelligence, and their spine. And without you, uh, they would collapse. So. Through that, you get a whole shitload of power. Yeah. And when you can do it without force or without harming them, when you do it this in this indirect way where you're actually seen to be helping them, 
they're going to grant you what you desire. He says that your power, you get this power without ever touching anything. And the dependence is one of the best ways to get this. Another way you can get it, and an, another one for the real world, is get as much training and investment in yourself. So, after you've, they've invested so much in you, they'll see it as a sunk cost if they got rid of you. So, you've got a lot more power mm-hmm. over them if you know they've invested tens of thousands of dollars or whatever in as many training and development programs as possible. That's it, mate. It's sort of like the the graduate programs when you go and do two years they've they've essentially paid two years they've paid 100 grand 120 grand of training we really haven't done that much for them it's pretty much you've just been a cost to them but they feel you know this sunk cost fallacy almost that they're dependent on you because you've you've already taken all this money out of them they've invested Mm. this money in you so they want you to stick around he's got another absolutely ripper of a story here by story of Louis the 11th spider king of France it's got a cool name as well but this dude, he loved astrology and he hired one one day to make a prediction that a lady in court, um, so that he made a prediction that the lady in court would die in eight days. Mm. And then eight days later, this lady died. died. So, the king was absolutely terrified. He thought, fuck, you know, this is a big risk to the kingdom. He might um, do bad things to me or whatever. So, the king just sentenced this astrologer to death. Yeah, the reason being he thought, you know, look, maybe it was luck. But maybe this guy's got some mysterious power that he was able to kill this person to make his prediction correct. It's a scary thing to have happen. Absolutely. So, one evening, Lewis summoned this astrologer to his room high in the castle. And the idea was when he came in, he'd get the servants, he'd just toss him off the top floor <laughs> and uh, absolutely destroy him. And he, he, before he gave the order, Lewis asked him, you claim to understand astrology and know the fate of others. So, tell me what your fate will be and how long do you have to live? You know, thinking he's the smart one, thinking, mate, you're going to get cooked in, in three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but he replied, I shall die three days before your majesty. <laughs> <laughs> so, the man's life was spared and Lewis did not only kill him, but gave him the finest gifts, the finest doctors or whatever because, you know, if he killed him, he's worried he was going to die himself. So, he probably became the most powerful man in the whole kingdom. Exactly. <laughs> mate, he became completely dependent on um, on this guy because, as you say, mate, as soon as this guy dies, King Louis dying three days later or so mm. he thought. And so, that, mate, that's a bloody phenomenal power move. Yes. That's a great, you know, just he's about to die, he saves himself for the <laughs> mate, phenomenal stuff by him, I reckon. This guy's pretty switched on. So, when it comes to all this, do not imagine that your master's dependence, it's not going to make him love you. It's actually going to make them fear you and maybe even resent you. But there's a really good quote by Machiavelli here. He says, it is better to be feared than loved because fear you can control and love you can never. So, if you've got this great relationship where you love each other or whatever, this emotion is very subtle and changeable uh, with the whim, but fear will make them insecure and have give you the power. So, to have people depend on you out of fear of the consequences of losing you rather than love of your company is absolutely powerful. I love it, mate. Law number 11. Learn to keep people dependent on you. Mm. Good stuff. It is really, really good stuff. Now, law number 28, enter action with boldness. And it kicks it off here with, if you are unsure of a course of action, do not attempt it. Your doubts and hesitations will infect your execution. Timidity is dangerous. Better to enter with boldness. Any mistakes you commit through audacity are easily corrected with more audacity. Everyone admires the bold. No one honors the timid. All right, that's great, man. So, basically saying, look, if you don't know what you're doing, go full on. Don't go in there half-hearted, timid, 
a little bit unsure because people are going to sniff that out. They're going to sense that and realize that you don't really know what you're doing and you're not going to have any power. But if you go in there as the king and you go in there as, you know, I know what I'm doing, I've got full boldness, I've got full assurity in myself, then just absolutely go for it. And even if you stuff up, just go for a bigger move the next time to fix it. So he has a comparison here of boldness versus hesitation. So hesitation on one hand, this actually puts obstacles in your path and boldness on the other hand eliminates it. And he says, once you understand this, you will realize it is essential to overcome your natural timidity and practice the art of audacity. Man, I think that is absolutely huge. And that's one of those, this is one of those things. If you just take away this one thing from the book, then it's absolutely huge. Oh, definitely. He uses the image of uh, a lion circling its hesitant, hesitant prey. The lion can sense that this thing's hesitant. If it boldly and strongly ran away, the lion's probably not going to chase because it looks like it knows what it's doing. But when they're hesitant, they're unsure, they're cooked, mate. The lion's about to chomp down on their ass. People have a sixth sense for the weakness of others. So if in a first encounter, you demonstrate your willingness to compromise, back down, retreat, you will bring out the lion, even in the people mm. who are not necessarily that bloodthirsty. Yeah. I love it. And everything depends on perception. As you were saying, it's that sense, even though you don't actually know what's going on in someone's head, just that perception that they either know what they're doing or they don't know what they're doing is enough to tell you that maybe I should follow this guy or maybe I should steer clear of this guy. Mm. I think this is one of the things you definitely learn through, uh, you know, say, entering from university and through work. I used to probably be under the impression that being timid is okay. You're being a nice person. You're being agreeable. But really, it just doesn't cut it. You need to be bold mm. and, you, and timidity doesn't get you nowhere. You can't be a wimpy wimp. I reckon, you'd, <laughs> I reckon we'd all be amazed at how little people actually know and how uh, little confidence they actually have. But just that appearance of being confident and just them pretending to be, you know, them being bold makes you think, yeah, this guy knows what he's doing. This guy's got power. Or, you know, this woman's certainly in charge here. She knows exactly what's going on. Where under the surface, maybe they don't. I think this plays out big time in politics because if you really think about it, these people are absolutely full of shit. They do not know at all what they're talking about. But they just say statements based on nothing out of absolute boldness. <laughs> and these are the ones who somehow make it to the top of politics. I like it, mate. Here's a quote from Balthazar Gracian. Always set to work without misgivings on the score of imprudence. Fear of failure in the mind of a performer is an onlooker, already evidence of failure. Actions are dangerous when there is doubt to their wisdom. It would be safer to do nothing. So what are you saying, mate? If, you, if you've got doubt, if people can see your hesitation, it's better to do nothing. Yes, and if you think of, say, any performer, probably, uh, probably the biggest, say, in um, stand-up comedy or something. Oh, yeah. If someone definitely. goes on the stage and you can see they're fearful from the very start, it's not as funny. No one here is funny. It's just brutal to watch if they're nervous and they're not delivering it as a master. Yeah. yeah. I think it's also this perception uh, Scott Adams talked about in his book, Win Bigly. He always says, I'm a trained hypnotist and I know the powers of persuasion. And just by saying that, then you think, oh, this guy's a hypnotist. He's able to hypnotize me. You're much more likely to be hypnotized. Where if you go in there and say, oh, I've just learned this new skill. I'm going to try it out on you for the first time. It might work, but it might not. There's almost no chance you're going to be hypnotized because you didn't enter that action with boldness. Mm, absolutely. Uh, he's got something called the Aretino strategy here. And this is for someone, say if you're very small and you've got no power and you've got no reputation, you're an absolute nobody. If you want to get there to the top really quick, then this strategy is for you. So it's a ripper. 
So Aretino was the son of a poor shoemaker, and in 1514, he absolutely abused the Pope. So he put <laughs> he put pamphlets all around the city, right, just saying things like, uh, "To my heir, Cardinal Santi Quattro, I give my jaws so he can devour so he can devour Christ's revenues." And then he, dev- he pretty much devoured everyone in the Pope's kind of cabinet, and this hurled him into fame because what he did, he he said what the whole community had on their mind, but he brought it to their attention, and through uh, attacking the person at the top. He gained respect and reputation from everybody. It's sort of like David. Mm. You know, he's this little wimpy shepherd and he goes to take on Goliath, the big six foot nine giant, the best soldier ever. And David's this little scrawny nobody. But when David kills Goliath, David is the most feared competitor ever. Yes. So that's the key here is voice what the public feels. And the expression shared feelings is always powerful. Search for the most prominent target as possible. And, you know, the world will enjoy the spectacle and honor you being the underdog. He says that few people are actually born bold, which I'd agree with. It's not an easy thing to do something you're unsure of and pretend that you're completely certain of it. Yes. It's something you've got to learn, you've got to practice, you've got to develop that ability to go in there like the big dog and just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm bold here. Mm. You have to practice and develop the boldness. And you'll often find uses for it. He says the best place to begin is negotiation when you ask to set your own price. So the, the way to do it is set your value high and then set it higher. <laughs> <laughs> so just be ruthless and do not compromise down in your negotiations. Mate, that's pretty bold. So if you go, oh, I'll give you 120 and they say I'll give you 100, most people would think, oh, I'll go 110. If you go 125... Mate, you've got power. (laughs) You've definitely got power. But as you said earlier, man, and this is huge and the big takeaway here, it's an acquired habit. So, and it's picked up out of the desire to avoid conflict. So, this is something that we're always really subconsciously trying to avoid and it's a bad acquired habit we pick up. Mm. And again, this is one of those points. I think this is a really good takeaway from the book. Oh, definitely. Mate, so is he saying uh, that we be timid in order to avoid conflict or are we saying that we be bold in order to avoid conflict? What was he saying? No, our strategy is to be timid to avoid conflict. Is that something we can back out easy? Yes. Well, Uh that's something we need to root out. He says, if timidity has taken a hold on you out of your desire to avoid conflict, you need to root it out. Nice. And your value is lowered and you can create a self-fulfilling cycle of doubt and disaster. So, when you are timid of these other people to avoid conflict, you become more timid and that makes you more timid to avoid conflict and so yep. forth. So, it's a wheel of death. Yeah, I like it. Sorry, mate. I got caught up in the rooting it out because uh, to international listeners, rooting might mean pulling the roots out or cheering for your team, but to us Aussies, rooting uh, is, is a sexual thing. Yeah, rooting. <laughs> so, when you're not rooting out your timidity in terms of sexing it out. You're just pulling it out by the roots. I like it. Well, there's probably for some people out there in the SNM community <laughs> who um, can root, root out, out their timidity yeah. because... It's, you can't be timid in some of those situations. No, you've got to enter action with boldness. As Absolute Law 28 boldness. says, mate, enter action with boldness. Absolutely. Law 47. Now, this is uh, the second last law in the book, and I think this is vitally important. After you've read 46 laws of power and you think, oh, I'm, I'm about to take over the whole world now, you got to be. this is a nice one to finish off to balance. Law 47, do not go past the mark you aimed for. In victory, learn when to stop. And the judgment here is, the moment of victory is often the moment of greatest peril. 
In the heat of victory, arrogance and overconfidence can push you past the goal you had aimed for. And by going too far, you make more enemies than you defeat. Do not allow success to go to your head. There is no substitute for strategy and careful planning. Set a goal and when you reach it, stop. So this book is awesome in that there's the you know the description, there's the stories, and then there's like the keys to power. Then on the side, there's all these different little fables as well. Uh, this is one I, I liked, Leo Tol- Tolstoy. Uh, it's a this is a bit of a, a dark one, mate. But the vainglorious cockerel. Two cockerels fought on a dung heap. One cockerel was a stronger. He vanquished the other and drove him onto the dung heap. All the hens gathered around and the cockerel began to lord him. The cockerel wanted his strength and glory to be known all the way across the world. So he flapped his wings, he flew to the top of the barn, and he crowed, Look at me, all of you, I'm victorious. I'm the best cockerel in the world. No other cockerel in the world has such strength as I. And just as he was parading around the barn, an eagle swooped out of the sky, seized him in his claws, killed him, and carried him off to his nest to feed to his kids. So, (laughs) mate, that's uh, pretty dark. Basically, once his cockerel's beaten the weaker cockerel, he should have realized, I've won the battle, and that's it there. But by him going too far and trying to show that he was the best cockerel in the world, he uh, he lost <laughs> in the brutal. grand scheme of things. Brutal. And it's also very applicable in law, interestingly enough. So he says cross-examination lawyers conduct in a court trial. So it's vital to end on a triumph, but never go too far that you leave a seed of doubt or start to unravel the good work you've already done. That's it, man. If you've got someone on the ropes and they've just revealed something that you want them to reveal... Don't ask another question. Just mic drop. Leave it there. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> just bang. I win. I, I, that, that's the way to do it, mate. Don't go too far. That would be in a court. Just mic drop and oh. walk the fuck out. <laughs> mate, I reckon you win. Powerful. Oh. That's power. That's cool. <laughs> Don't go too far. Mate, the image you use is Icarus falling from the sky. So, you know, Icarus and his dad, they had the wings. They flew out. They'd essentially defeated this minotaur. But Icarus, he was so elated by the victory and he was so eager to fly and fly higher and fly higher. He got too close to the sun. Wings melted, he fell to his death again, mate, dirty. Mm. So that's law 47. Do not go past the mark you aim for. In victory, learn when to stop. Yeah, it's a really incredible law, that one. And throughout the book, it's obviously uh, the analogy it used throughout the book is war. So everything you're just trying to destroy, 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 kill the person, head falls off, all that kind of shit. But if you look at it through another perspective and say that law you just said, another way of saying that is be humble. Yeah. So, he could have put it through the lens of another metaphor and it would have been an all positive book and, and whatever. So, there's so much wisdom in this book, but it uses the metaphor of war and death and the darkness. And that's why it can be perceived as manipulation and strategy and all that kind of stuff, which it definitely is for. But I think there's some real positive takeaways and so much wisdom to be taken from this book. Oh, definitely, man. I think by him using such extreme, you know, death, violence, seduction, by using such extreme examples, I think it makes the everyday world seem nowhere near as bad. Like, yes, there's the corporate politics and you've got to use these laws of power to your benefit by either recognize when people are using them against you, don't use them in the wrong way, use them in the right way, use them for good, not evil. I think having those examples of war just you know heightens how important it is to the small-time stuff as well. So, this book is absolutely vital for anyone who lives in some kind of strong power dynamic, so to speak. So, I know this is a cult classic in jails around the world. Oh, is it? From there into, say, the music industry, it's huge, into celebrities. And, you know, for us, we both experienced this in just your traditional corporate culture in the past. So, you know, everyone is playing so much power games 
and they do not know it themselves, but they're unconsciously doing a lot of these laws of power. So, um, by, say, defining the enemy, so to speak, using another Dalai Lama kind of quote, you are understanding what their tactics and strategies are and you can use that against themselves and <laughs> those people. I like it. Maybe I'm a bit more evil after reading this book. <laughs> I mean, it's a good book, man. It's 450 pages and it's a big 450 pages as well. As in the physical size of the paper is large as well as there's small little stories scattered throughout. So, it's not a quick read by any means. It's a good, you're committing a three, four weeks to this. It's If you're reading it, you know, slowly and thoroughly, it's a good month-long read almost. There is a concise version, which just has like the judgment and the keys to power, There's like the summary version of each law, but I don't reckon you're getting the full experience. You're not doing the book justice unless you read the full Big Papa. I 100% agree with that. That's a, it is a Big Papa in yeah. so many ways. Yeah.